I am Mary from Essex Junction, Vermont. Join me at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. You'll get all sorts of extra content, just like I do, every month. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts, TV. And this week, Netflix's latest limited series looks at a series of trials in which press coverage influenced either the court of law, the court of public opinion, or both. We'll take a close look at trial by media. Joining me to get that done and more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist, love of my life, and... Now, sweatpants-wearing pandemic guy, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. I think I finally gave up. Yeah. Today was the day. I gave up months ago. So okay. Sweatpants it is. Yeah. I'm impressed that it's taken you this long. I really am. Yeah. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I'm letting everybody down. It's an audio medium, Kevin. No one knows. Well, they know now because of your fat <laughs> mouth. Thank you. <laughs> Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, amateur intuitionist, and our certified cat lady, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. Yeah, that's me. And cat yoga uh, practitioner uh, this week. (laughs) Yay? Meow? I don't know what one says to that. Nom meows day? Every time I do yoga, I shut the door and Rocky the cat sits outside and he's like, meow, and he like howls until I let him in. And then because I haven't got my hair cut in like three months, whenever I do downward dog and my hair goes up, he starts biting my hair. Nice. Mm. So it's been kind of interesting. So he's an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> but then he just goes and lays down and like watches me with this sort of like disdainful cat expression. And yeah. I'm like, seriously? Seriously. <laughs> For real. And finally, our Doubting Thomas, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, host of the Strange Arrivals podcast, Lake Dweller, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. Hola. Toby, I just want to tell you, I was there for your taping of your most recent book club on Catch and Kill, and I got to tell you, you're a really good host, and it was really fun to be part of the video audience, and thank you for letting me backseat produce it with all my snark. It was really fun, Toby. <laughs> it was fun. It's a good way to do it, actually. Not necessarily you producing it in the comments, but the rest of it. <laughs> hey, I learned a lot about how to be a better audience member. Let me just put it that way. Um, <laughs> so if people want well, we, to join us... We accomplished us, one thing, then. You know what we accomplished, Toby, though, besides that? Is we, in that Patreon book club podcast, which everyone should sign up for our Patreon right now, by the way, at patreon.com slash partners in crime media... Because the other thing we accomplished is we really did learn that you, if they're not sports people, do not know who any celebrity is. It's really incredible. It's TV celebrities. <laughs> like all these people that were people were saying stuff were, were people who are on TV. Like Matt Lauer? Like, right. <laughs> I mean, I know, who, I know who Matt Lauer is. I didn't say I didn't know who he is. I just, I'd never like actually like watched him. I think you like, said you've never seen a minute of him on TV. And I said, have you never watched the Olympics, Toby Ball? I, I, I should have said, I think I may have occasionally glanced the TV and seen him on it and then paid no attention. <laughs> but I just was going to say, like, I've never, like, sat down and been like, huh, what's Matt Lauer saying? Yeah. And, like, heard him say a sentence that I then took in and thought about. Yeah. So, like, I could identify him in a lineup. On the other hand, until they explained to me who, what was that one guy's name? Boggins, somebody or other. <laughs> yes. And then uh, somebody who had both first and last names began with M, but I can't remember. Margot Martindale, yes. Yeah. Like that Boggins guy I'd heard of, but I had no idea who he was. Margot Martindale. Never heard of her. Right, right. I've never heard of her either, Toby. Thank you. Yes, you have. You've seen her in a million things, things that we've reviewed. And also, by the way, Toby- I don't Toby, know what the fuck anybody is talking I'm about. sorry. It was just a very funny thing where we we figured out on the Patreon podcast with uh, Janet Varney and Ryan Hass, who was like the producer of Bundyville, and Lauren Bright Pacheco, who made Murder in Oregon. We all learned as a group that Toby does not know who any famous people are. Unless their last name is Garnett or another basketball last name. <laughs> so at the end, without giving away too much, when they like signed off and gave like their social media stuff or whatever, I was like, then you have to like name a celebrity and I'll say if I know who that is or not. You were one for four. <laughs> yeah. Well. Do you want to name a celebrity right now and see if any of us know who they are? 
Otis Birdsong. Nope. Nope. Sports person. Yeah, he's a backup point guard for the Nets back in the late '80s, <laughs> mid '80s. Several celebrities. Uh, yeah. Huh? <laughs> right on the tip of my tongue. All right. Well, you can get that amazing episode of our book club podcast at our Patreon. And Kevin, what else can you get on our Patreon right now? Well, we have the latest edition of Leave It to Bricker, mm. where Bricks is going off on her own, doing her own reviews. Nice. She's doing Brun, Brun. The Bridge. The Bridge. Brun, Brun. Take it to the Brun. And uh, well, Toby's podcast, the Deep Dive Book Club podcast, will be coming out very shortly. And, you know, we got Mary with Podcast, the after show, a lot of good stuff. What's on the after show for this week, Kevin? Well, I believe we are going to be talking about the re-release of the uh, non Syed episodes of Undisclosed. Right. I'm actually just going to tell you guys what it's been like making them. That's what we're going to do in okay. the after show tonight. <laughs> yeah. All right. And then we can talk a little bit about them as well. So, Kevin, one other question for you related to Patreon. Who are our Patreon patron saints this week? <laughs> Our Patreon patron saints are Gil Hancox and Tonya Davis. Bless you. <laughs> you really like doing that bless you thing, don't you? Well, it kind of ties into the... Do you, you feel know. like the manifestation of your childhood dream that maybe your mother had for you when you were an altar boy, that maybe someday you'd be a priest? Nope. <laughs> Toby, uh, we should mention to our listeners that you are, in fact, not taping in your regular home studio tonight. No. So it may sound a little different to them. Where are you? You know, in the summer, every once in a while, I uh, tape from our lake house on Lake Winnipesaukee, and that's where I am right now. Nice. I'm actually about to take a picture of the sunset, so just hang in there for a second. That's fine, Toby. You just go ahead and make some other content while you're actually being paid to make this content. You just go ahead and do that. It's cool. We'll just hang out and wait. Well, you know know what the thing is? Is that I'm going to tweet this out to our followers. Wow. He doesn't care. He's making all that sweet iHeart money. That's true. Now he has a fancy UFO podcast. He doesn't need us anymore. That's right. All right. Shall we finally start the show? Let's do it. Let's do it. So I just hit record now. (laughs) High profile cases. There are two trials. Outside the courthouse and inside. Court of public opinion is very important. That's the first trial. Netflix's six-part series, Trial by Media, looks at a group of high-profile cases and how press coverage influenced their outcomes. In some cases, the intense media coverage and live television coverage were major factors, such as in the Amadou Diallo police shooting trial. In other cases, public opinion shifts and turns one-time heroes into villains, as in the Bernie Getz case. And we begin with a story that says something about our times, the story of the subway vigilante. To many New Yorkers, this man has become a folk hero. It was the most notorious subway ride in history. And in other instances, engaging the media was a deliberate defense strategy, like in the Rod Blagojevich trial. Part of the strategy was to put him on TV, because he still had this outsized, likable personality. Hi, I'm Rod Blagojevich. I'm backstage at the Ellen DeGeneres show. Please welcome Rod. Make people laugh, make him a sympathetic character, because they... thought that that could ultimately play out in court. Governor Rod Blagojevich is talking on TV as he did. Like The Innocence Files, each installment of Trial by Media is helmed by a different director. The cases cover the spectrum and shine a light on the system, the attorneys, and the media, putting a thumb on the scales of justice. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from Trial by Media, so if you want to remain spoiler-free, go to the estimated time code in our show notes for our thumbs up or thumbs down review. All right, so in Trial by Media, episode one, Kevin, covers a case that I thought I remembered well. Actually, I can probably comfortably say that about all of the cases in this series. Yeah. I thought I remembered them well. I thought I knew them well. However, they haven't really been covered on a lot of other true crime media that we review. They haven't been on the subject of TV shows. It's not like the OJ case or other cases that we've seen. Yeah. First of all, before we talk about episode one, what do you think of that? What do you think about the premise of this? Taking cases that yeah. haven't been overcovered in recent years and giving them this new look. I think it's a really good concept. Um, I think, though, the one thing it's lacking in that overall umbrella idea is that it doesn't really articulate a unifying theory about media influence in the justice system. And I think it's, you know, we saw this multi-director project with the Innocence Files, and we're seeing it again. So you have different styles and different viewpoints and, and different voices doing each episode. It seemed to be sort of like one thing, whether it's somebody coming out and saying, you know, 
But when the press gets involved, blah, blah, blah. They just sort of kind of sat there. But overall, I think, again, each individual story in the six parts was very well done. Yeah. So I will tell you, just for full disclosure, I did interview Jeffrey Tubin, one of the executive producers of this. Who was the other executive producer? George Clooney. You didn't get to interview him, He was huh? not put up in an interview by Netflix, unfortunately. Re- Rebecca, he wanted to do it. And I said, no fucking way, Clooney. Get away from my wife. <laughs> this is not happening. But really, the first question I asked Jeffrey Tubin when we talked, I mean, I haven't heard the final Netflix podcast yet, so I don't know like how it was edited. But the first question I asked him was like, you are a television legal commentator. Isn't this all your fault? (laughs) (laughs) And he was just like, yeah, totally. And I wouldn't like he he covered the OJ trial. Mm -hmm. He covered the Diallo trial. Like it is his fault. But he also like sort of sees value in media, but also sees how it can be manipulated. So let's pivot then. uh, And let's talk about episode one, which was the Jenny Jones case. Jenny Jones, Sally Jesse Raphael, Ricky Lake, Jerry Springer, Maury Povich, Montel Williams. They all had the same type of formats and the term ambush television referred to television episodes that were kept secret from the participants. This was a trial about a murder that took place after a setup on the Jenny Jones show in which a straight guy was confronted by somebody who had a quote secret crush on him and that secret crush turned out to be a man. And this case got complicated quickly. Laura Bricker, were you familiar with the Jenny Jones case before watching this episode of Trial by Media? I was not. What did you think? First off, I was like, when I was watching the clips of all of the talk shows of that sort of era, the sort of shock goad you into reacting crazy talk shows, I was like, wow. That sort of, you know, sets the scene right up front. But watching it and then watching the way that they were manipulating the guests on the show just made me so angry as I was watching it, especially as I watched how it played out. I was just like, it was just cruel the way that they set people up. And I know they do it because, you know, it's like in college, like, I mean, hello, we all watched Jerry Springer. Like, you know, it was one of those things that was on in like the lounge and your dorm or whatever. But Going back and looking at it now, it just seems more harsh than it did at the time. And also, I was really struck by just the like homophobia that was so present in this entire show, like from that time period. I mean, it certainly was like the setup was to make him cringe, right, Kevin? Mm -hmm. That was the setup was to like, let's see how uncomfortable we can make this straight guy, which is in 2020. I mean, I know that like things are not as fair and and people don't have the rights they necessarily should have even in 2020. But it was shocking to see. And and I remember this well. And this was didn't feel like that long ago to me. Toby, what did you think of this first episode, the Jenny Jones case? Because it was a complicated story because it was more than just a guy who got mad and killed somebody. There were lots of other mitigating factors here. What did you think? Yeah, this, that's what I liked about the first two episodes was that, you know, there were complications and it, and it wasn't, it didn't seem like there was an easy answer. And, and that sort of, where do you apportion blame in, into what happened with Johnson Smiths? Because you, you, you find out that he has some mental illnesses, which would affect his decision making. It, it's clear that his father is sort of virulently homophobic. And I think they mentioned that he's even violent. And there's the whole thing with the Jenny Jones, just like this manipulation and very public humiliation of, of this guy. And as a matter of fact, lots of people, but in this particular case, this guy. So, so how do you kind of parse out what, what's important and what isn't? Kevin, the trial was interesting because there was this very colorful attorney. Yeah, right. Yeah. Jeffrey Figer. What do you think of him as a character? And what He's an think- asshole. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but what do you think about the idea of like the Jenny Jones episode did get into some questions about journalism and about free speech and about yeah. all the things that on TV you should or shouldn't be allowed to do. What do you think of those questions and how they were dealt with? Well, it's got, it really is a good indictment of that daytime TV, the ambush TV as they call it. It's really, in a lot of ways, low class. Is it it's low class, or does it prey on the, Does it prey on the poor? You know. Well, I, I, yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of the guests. It's it seems just sort of anecdotally that they're of a uh, lower socioeconomic stature. Uh, you know, even like Jenny Jones, she started off like trying to be Oprah. Yeah. And it became apparent if you want to stay on the air that you have to be Jerry Springer. It was a good look at that time. I don't think we have a lot of those shows on anymore. We saw Judge Judy. But if anyone wants to say that Judge Judy isn't this, they're fooling themselves. Well, no, no, no. It is not this. It's bad, though. It is not this. It's not this. This This is different, yes. Which is an audience egging on the guests 
and drinking their tears right. and cheering on their pain right. and inciting people to turn and throw chairs and throw punches and that security guards are a necessary part of the staff to be bouncers. Yeah. Um, you know, we have now that we have Catfish. And we have all these shows like on like the like Teen Mom Two and all these shows on MTV that are like putting people it's, in provocative yeah. situations and filming it. Like it's different. There isn't a live audience to do it in front of, which adds a different layer. Yeah. So this is a different kind of setup. And then you know it, it brings a good point. Uh, ultimately, legally, is the Jenny Jones show legally responsible for the murder? And I don't think you can say it was a foreseeable conclusion. Right. They have like a large sample size of guests across the industry and put in worse situations and surprise the person with a crush on you is same sex as you. And yeah, maybe they throw punches and they get angry, but nobody killed anybody. Right. So to say, yeah, they should have known. I don't think you can say that was foreseeable. Toby, I'm curious to know, A, what you think of the Jenny Jones show and B, what you thought of Jenny Jones getting on the stand and testifying during that civil trial. I think the expectation was that she would get up there and dazzle, but she really didn't. What did you think of that? And what do you think of the Jenny Jones show just as a format? Like, is that something that you ever watched or saw in the 90s when that was like all over TV? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Jenny Jones. Is <laughs> your favorite. Right up, right up my alley. No, you know, I probably saw a few different things. Morton Downey Jr. I do remember watching him a couple times. Do you remember him? Yeah, of course I do. He was a nut. He was a nut, but he had a different kind of... Um, the thing about Jenny Jones is, and this is what's interesting to me, she was a pretty television host who didn't really bring a lot except to do what the producers sort of set up and deliver it. Morton Downey right. Jr. at least had like a gestalt, like he had a charisma in a way. Like Jerry Springer also, like former mayor, yeah. like, like brought something to it. Jenny Jones literally was like an observer watching shit go down on the show right. and making it worse. Are you right? saying that she doesn't sort of give off the vibe of provocateur? She does. No, she doesn't. A vibe? Well, in the vibe, no. But she actually did do the provocative thing. But I, I think Kevin hit on what she was doing on the stand, right? Is that she was purposely coming off as not being dazzling or provocative or anything. She's just Jenny. She's just Jenny. I love it. She's Jenny from the block. <laughs> she gives people, she doesn't know what they're going to say. <laughs> she doesn't know what they're going to do. That that's, that's why it's a good show. It's the whole point, counselor. I'm not going to tell them how they should react. It's, it's not even that it's, you're putting people in these messed up situations and carrying them up for humiliation and, you know, I, I assume the audience has, has been served drinks beforehand, if that's their thing. Uh, so, you know, everybody's pretty ginned up. But, you know, I, I think it's really, it's it's about getting poor people or other marginalized people on the on the stage so so that you can laugh at them. And that to me is, that's objectionable. Yeah. You know, whether, whether or not somebody ends up being murdered, the whole idea that that is entertainment, it shouldn't be. I mean, it is. And I guess it continues to be in some ways. I feel like people are more aware for the most part who end up on TV of what's going on. Like they're, they're aware of the camera more than these people were. I, I guess that's better. Because there's a little more control over the image that they're putting out there. Yeah. Uh, it's maybe a little disturbing that that's the image they want to put out there. Yeah, at least they have agency. Uh, whereas in this case, it seems like, you know, I want to go on TV and I'm willing to be humiliated in order to be on TV. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why this show was never on at 10 p.m. on network television or on PBS. There's a reason why it was on during the daytime and that they were able to, you know, mine their own television audience to get the guests. Hmm. It's sort of this, you know, this uh, cheap, ecosystem. Cheap to make, self-feeding beast is what it was. There were not a lot of MBAs who were saying, yes, I'd like to go on television <laughs> and talk about my secret crush. Yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, it, it was a little exploitive. Well, speaking of a moment in time, um, episode two of this series profiles to me... I think it was one of the strongest episodes in the series. One of the most interesting cases, I mean, I remember it very strongly from my childhood, it really captures that moment in time. That's the Subway Vigilante case, the Bernie Getz case. Lara Bricker, I think this episode does a really good job of setting up that this happened at a moment in time where perhaps reasonable people could feel, initially anyway, 
that Bernie Getz, who shot these four young black men on a subway train, was perhaps motivated by fear, perhaps motivated by self-defense. And you see these men on the street interviews with people before he was caught, before anything happened, who were like, yeah, I'm afraid too. I get it. And then we meet Bernie Getz. Laura, what did you think of this episode? And what did you think of the Bernie Getz that we got to know during the course of this episode? I hate that guy so much. <laughs> really? He is such an a-hole. Oh, my God. I hate him. You know, again, I, I have this sort of missing section of what happened, you know, in culture at different times because I was living in the middle of nowhere with no TV and access right. to media like other people. So I don't remember this so case. So in like 1984, like you were not aware yeah. of the Bernie Getz case, which is fine. I'm glad that you learned about it in this episode because I think this episode yeah. did a very good job of really fleshing it out fully. So what are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I, you know, first of all, I want to know a little bit more about what he was doing in New Hampshire. I was like, ooh, there's a New Hampshire connection. But watching him and, and just watching the sense of entitlement that became more and more blatant as his explanation of what he did and why he did it went on, it was just rage inducing to watch. I was getting just so angry, yelling at the TV but watching how he created around him this sort of like mob mentality of the people that were latching on and like the waitress who's like, he should run for president or something. And I'm like, he was just a dick, uh, that guy. I, and, and so I was I was glad that eventually um, he got what was coming to him. But it was still just maddening to watch just he was totally justified and no big deal. You know, and, and, and it just it made me really, really angry. A couple questions about the Bernie Getz case, Kevin. I think one of the most interesting elements of it is that this is an example of one of several cases that we're going to talk about in this series mm-hmm. where the person at the center of it leaned in to the media. That's why this was on this series, because Bernie Getz made a decision to not do the thing that like every defendant is told to do and like not give interviews, not talk, not whatever. But he had Chinese food with Barbara Walters. Yeah. He was on, like, he was a subject of, like, Saturday Night Live skits. Like, he leaned into it. The media sort of embraced him. That was his way of dealing with it. He had to talk about it. I would not have done things differently. Uh, at the same time, I can't talk about it too much because I do have pending criminal charges. And I told him, everything you say is going to come back into that trial. But he was an unguided missile. That didn't really work for him in the long run. Yeah, unlike somebody like a Rob Blagojevich, who we'll talk about later, his leaning into the media coverage was not really a trial strategy. It was, I want to say what's on my mind because I have this view. And as you know, his lawyer said, he was an unguided missile. So it wasn't like very surgical. He just wanted to talk. But also part of the media coverage was for that week after the shooting, before the arrest, when nobody knew who knew who he was, and the papers, you know, went wild with it. It really touched on a place and time that was unique. If you'd said a white guy shot four black men on a bus in 1960s Mississippi, that tells a story. You don't have to know anything else. There's extra textual stuff there. You understand immediately the context of that, right? 1980s New York, coming out of the 70s, where New York is, is crime-ridden and it's bankrupt and it's filthy and people feel like it's unsafe. Shooting in a subway was very symbolic of sort of how people felt at the time. He was a, like they said, a folk hero at first. And then as more things came along, there was the backlash where you see it swing back, where he is acquitted at his criminal trial in the 80s. After that incredibly prejudicial display by the Guardian Angels, the Black Guardian Angels reenacting, yeah. what ha- that was incredible if the judge allowed that, was it not? Yeah, it seems, uh, I mean, that, yes. <laughs> but then you get back to like the 1990s when the civil suit comes, right? So in the 80s criminal trial, it was really the city that was on on trial. Society was on trial. In the 90s, Bernie Getz was on trial. Yeah. It was interesting to me, Toby, and um, this is something that I did talk about with Jeffrey Tubin because I think this is why this episode was made. All of the threads directly to 2020 that you can draw from the Bernie Getz case, the seeds of so many things 
happened in this case. First of all, there's the rise of Al Sharpton to prominence as a uh, spokesperson for the black community. There is the NRA, which previous to this case and a couple of other incidents, but this is a seminal moment for them, where the NRA before this had been a club for sporting gun owners who wanted to like shoot targets and go hunting and shoot deer. It was a hobby in, you know, organization. And then it became a lobbying organization that pushed gun ownership all the way to distrust of the media. You hear Bernie Getz himself say almost exactly in the same way what we hear President Trump saying about, you know, the dishonest media, the distrustful media. You know, we're talking about the seeds of the Black Lives Matter movement. Like I saw so many threads that seemed to like coalesce. It felt like this case. And I know I know there were other cases, too, but this case was sort of the beginning of a story that is still playing out today. What did you think when you watched this episode, Toby? Yeah, and I, I was thinking about the Central Park Five yeah. was another thing. I, it's not even scapegoating. It's clearly racism, but it's also, you know, you're stereotyping young black men as being menaces and that the most horrible possible punishments are legitimate based on those sort of fear feelings that you have. The thing that really kind of struck me was there was one story, which is he got the shit kicked out of him one time and it clearly left like a psychological mark. And I think the one time that he said something that made the whole thing seem not justified, but at least understandable what he was thinking at the time was when he was like, those guys were about to kick the shit out of me. And I've experienced it and I did not like it. And you and you hear, I think they had at least one or possibly two people kind of echoed that as being the reason behind it. And as long as that before they knew who he was, and even once they knew who he was, but that it seemed like that was really what was going on, that the crime was looked in, in one way by a lot of people, not not by Al Sharpton, but by a lot of people. But then when it became clear that he was a racist. And, you know, he had gone beyond defending himself, but had maimed them in cold blood. That then suddenly the same actions, like nothing had changed about the actions, but just because his mindset at the time was different than what people had assumed it was based on their own fears, then suddenly he becomes, you know, instead of a folk hero, but 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 really a villain, except for, I think, people who harbor the same sort of racial resentments that apparently he did. So I, I I don't want to make it sound like I'm in any way defending him, but I just thought that the way the narrative changed and that changed people's understanding of what happened. I, I thought I thought that was pretty interesting. Now, there is a thread that ties between uh, the Subway Vigilante episode two of the series and the Amadou Diallo episode, episode three, which is that in the days following the subway shooting, Bernie Getz, before anyone knew it was Bernie Getz, was given a name, the Subway Vigilante. And Amadou Diallo was named by the press immediately after his death as an immigrant street peddler. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was like the sort of beginning of the media's, you know, naming a victim in the way that almost blames or marginalizes the victim and takes away their humanity. Laura, what did you think of that initial media coverage of the Amadou Diallo shooting when, you know, we saw the victim framed that way, especially when we had this close-up look in interviews with his mother? His mother was my hero in, like, all of these, all of six episodes. I was like, I want to be like her. Not only, you know, does she come to a country that's not her own where she doesn't know anyone and she's coming in sort of blind in terms of trying to figure out what's going on and you know she's being initially fed the narrative from uh, Rudy Giuliani and they're putting her up in the hotel and everything like that but you know she clearly has her own voice and she's going to find out what's actually happening and once she realizes what is going on she speaks up she advocates and she really becomes a very consistent and steady voice very effectively for the other side of this narrative. Because, you know, when you were saying before, it's like this narrative that's put out there in the beginning and it sticks. And, you know, going back to the subway vigilante case, Ken was watching this one with me and he remembers watching this when it happened. And he's like, oh, yeah, that guy, you know, he did that because, you know, those guys deserved it because they were going to rob him or something. So he remembers that first narrative that he saw. How many years ago was this? So it's like that initial spin 
that's put onto the case. It's really interesting to see how that sort of sticks in somebody's memory and sticks in somebody's perception. But as regard to, you know, his mother, Diallo's mother, she is, she's just a hero. And I loved her. Kevin, I, I just kept thinking about the Eric Garner case mm-hmm. when I, I, when I remember, I remember this immigrant street peddler narrative. I do. And I remember like that sticking in a way that you look at it now and it's disgusting but it's still happening. I mean, I think about the Eric Garner case where we see this tape of him, you know, in this hole that he's saying he can't breathe and then he dies. But the first narrative that came out about him is he's a street peddler selling loose cigarettes as if that makes him less deserving of being treated with dignity. I mean, that's sort of immediate labeling of people who are victims of police violence, especially people of color. That still sticks. And we can say this Amadou Diallo thing is shocking but it's still happening every single time someone is shot. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I, I'm, I'm just kind of going by, you know, not my recollection of the news coverage, but of this episode, that the fact that it was 41 shots, like, immediately set the narrative mm. that it was excessive. You hear about the 41 shots, and I suppose the first thing you think about is that these are trigger-happy cops, depraved killers. But there's two sides to the coin. The other side of the 41 shots is these were scared cops. Right. I mean, obviously, one shot at an unarmed man is excessive. But the fact that it was so many shots, that it was clear cut that this was a terrible, terrible action. Uh, And it isn't until, you know, later when you get to trial where you see that sort of public narrative start to get spun. Mm. Because it is very hard to come back from sort of, you know, if you're the attorney and you're handed this, you got 41 shots. And how do you do that? And they explain, they said, well, the other side of that coin is you got some scared cops. Yeah. And so that's the story that they try to tell. And that's sort it of, worked. It worked. And, and sort of, you know, the trial by media tie into this episode is that in a lot of cases, what's happening in the newspaper or, you know, in some other media platform is slowly affecting the proceedings and the deliberations and those kinds of things. And just the sheer volume of the coverage precipitated a change of venue, which is a a different kind of change of proceedings. And it isn't like I'm going from the Bronx to Manhattan. Yeah, or or Brooklyn. Or Brooklyn. When they went to Albany and they explained why that was different. Yeah, you know, in theory, you're right. It gets it away from a group of citizens who have been inundated with the press coverage. But it puts it in a neighborhood that the racial dynamic has changed, and particularly in a case like this, that is important to understanding the crime. It was interesting to me, Toby, this whole idea that like, and it comes up, we see this over and over and over again. You know, we see it in, you know, uh, the jury selection of Doug Evans uh, and the Supreme Court opinion around that. There is this idea that only white people cannot see color. Only white people can be objective about race, which is why, by the way, racist prosecutors try to exclude black people from juries, right? Because of this assumption that black people won't find other black people guilty. Uh, Toby, how do you what do you think of that here? Because here I think it was smart on the part of this defense attorney to have these cops testify. They knew it was the only way they could avoid a conviction was to have them tell their stories of you know, fear. Of course, the cops were very prepared. I don't want to say whether or not it was true or not that they were afraid. But the one thing that the episode doesn't get into is how prepared those witnesses were for that. But there we did get interviews, though, with jurors, though, in, in this episode. I'm curious to know, Toby, what you think of that, the idea that, like, only white people could be fair when they're deciding a case like this. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that's unfortunately the default in a lot of things. And I, I think when I sent you my notes... It made me think of uh, when Sonia Sotomayor, when she was uh, uh, up for the Supreme Court, she said, you know, there are times when the voice of a wise Latina might be something or other. And people freaked out because it's like, how, you know, how dare you? How dare you acknowledge who you are? Right. Why do you think a Latina would be better than a white person? You know, it's like, uh, well, there's there's plenty of white people in the Supreme Court. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't have to go through a ton of examples because I think it's, it's pretty clear that there's this idea that for some reason white people won't fall into, uh, you know, being unable to objectively take a look at people in their own community. And it's ridiculous. I think the additional thing of taking something out of New York City and taking it from people in New York who, are, who you know, live there in a place 
that's quite different than Albany. And so I think it's easier to put forth ideas about New York that aren't necessarily going to seem accurate to people who actually live there, uh, but make it seem compelling to people who don't and just have this sense of what New York City is like. Now, this trial is being held not in New York City, but Albany. Uh, that's about 140 miles away from where the shooting took place. I don't see how Albany is a comparable county. You're talking about the Bronx as a 19% white population. Albany has an 89% white population. To me, it's it's kind of outrageous that you would be able to really remove that kind of trial from the community that's affected by it. I mean, that just seems to be antithetical to what we're trying to do with our justice system. And again, I mean, I, I, I think it, 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 it comes down to, to racism. Toby, you did send me another note that I just want to touch on before we move on to the next episode. You think that Al Sharpton was pretty smart looking back in the day, huh? I do. <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, it's it's funny because you know I was a, I I grew up in upstate New York, so I was not getting the the nightly news from New York City because I I associate like early Al Sharpton more with Tawana Brawley. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yep, which could have been another episode here. Oh, totally. In, in that situation. I don't think you can have like a reserved personality and get stuff done. You know, I think in that kind of situation, you need to be kind of over the top, sort of a firebrand. And everything about Reverend Al seemed pretty over the top back then. That do is is quite something. Laura, you liked it too, right? I, I liked his furry jacket myself, uh, but he was he was pretty snazzy. I was first I was like, wow. I was like, look at Al Sharpton. <laughs> you would never believe back in the eighties and nineties that Al Sharpton would be uh, in twenty twenty considered a relatively serious commentator on a I cable know. news network. Yeah. Would you? <laughs> no. So I want to talk about episode four of this series, which. I think it's a very strong episode. This is the Richard Scrooge case, which I did not know a whole lot about. This is about a corporate type guy perpetrating a fraud of sorts who then adopts a whole different persona and really leans into it in order to, I don't know, get away with it. Lara Bricker, what do you think of Richard Scrooge in this episode four of Trial by Media? I think this is one of my favorite episodes because this guy just like worked public opinion in such a way that was like pretty magnificent. Um, The way that he was able to do what he did, (laughs) going to the churches and uh, just, uh, you know, every news clip of him at a different church giving money, praying, praying, praying. I was like, oh, my God, this guy. Is anybody really buying this? It was really interesting to watch. And then especially to see the ripple effect from that when, you know, this whole group of black pastors shows up at court to support him. So yeah, uh, this whole episode was really something. Now, wait, was he the one that was also in like a rock band? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> I mean, this guy had it all going on for him. Kevin, this guy was House of Cards, like Frank Underwood in the first season of House of Cards, right? He's this rich white guy who successfully, I should say, manages to rebrand himself as a poor black man, sort of, <laughs> and and convince, like, granted, like, yeah. on the one hand, I want to be really cynical and say, like, many of these church leaders were probably just like, yeah, I'll take the check and just go along with whatever. But it's freaking awful. But also really, I hate to say it, kind of fun to watch how he did this incredibly manipulative and awful thing. But then it actually worked. And it was his lawyer's idea. We knew he needed to be on TV. In his own words, he and Leslie. It's just a different way of messaging. Twelve people going to decide your fate. You never know. You never know. <laughs> it worked for a time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with the rest of you guys that I think this was the most fun episode. In part because this is a civil trial. Yeah. And not a criminal trial. He didn't like murder the anyone. Yeah. So it seems like the media coverage uh, aspect of it is all sort of pre-trial stuff. Remember, it's in federal court. So you can't bring cameras into federal court. So there's no court TV live coverage for, from the, the trial. And, and there's a commentary going live and that kind of stuff. But his idea is about, let's get our own TV show. Yes. He became a telepastor. Well, yeah, his lead attorney uh, really laid out the case that, you know, you want to get him on TV because you get a lot of churchgoers. Yeah. So if you can show, uh, show show yourself to be somebody who is God-fearing, 
that they're perhaps going to look at you in a better way. Mm. Although I would think, I would argue perhaps the way this case was won was not in the air assault, but from the ground assault of the uh, the his own attorney in court, his, his uh, homespun country lawyer. <laughs> How would you say that, Kevin? Lar wants to hear you say it. I want you to say his, his trademark saying, Kevin, please, in your okay. Bill Rankin voice. All right. <laughs> All right. There are two sides to the pancake. No matter how thin, my grandma says, no matter how thin they pour that pancake, there are two sides to it. Toby, is that true? Are there two sides to a pancake, no matter how thin it's poured? That's, that's the truest thing that came out of that guy's mouth the entire time. <laughs> what do you think of Richard Scrooge, Toby? I know that you're more sort of in tune with like these kinds of crimes than the rest of us are. I mean, I know that you like financial, complicated, fraud stuff. Did you know about the Health South case before watching this? Never heard of it. Okay, so what'd you think of it? And what'd you think of Scrooge? You know, it almost plays like a parody because he's so full of shit all the time about everything. And this idea that he suddenly becomes religious and everybody kind of buys it. And he, he just wants everybody to be able to say, you know, you know, he's a good Christian man, you know, and part of what, how he gets them to buy it is by spreading money around. Did you see, by the way, who his guest was on his show when they showed that clip? No, who was no. it? It was Roy Moore. Oh, that's that's right. right. That's right. I, like it was Roy Roy I did notice that, actually. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, and, and before Roy Moore oh, was man. known for picking up 14-year-olds at For being at a malls, pedophile, yes. He, uh, it was all about trying to get the, uh, a Ten Commandments monument in front of the courthouse and you know, Birmingham or Montgomery or something. So he was like a real sort of theocracy guy before he was outed as a pedophile. Anyway, you know, when, when they showed that one pastor who had really been in his corner and then, you know, he was saying that when Scrooge got off the first time that, you know, it's just, you know, the Lord's looking after you and all this stuff and you got to keep that in mind. He's like, well, you know, and I, I basically never saw him again. It's like, well, that's the most fucking predictable thing in the world. Yeah. You know, you know what was good about that, Toby, was that throughout the interviews, it certainly made it seem like to this day that reverend still feels like Scrooge was sincere. He never said that he didn't think he was sincere. But at the end, it kind of said it all when he said, yep, he never came around again. He didn't have to say anything more than that. <laughs> but he's not By the way, Scrooge <laughs> is the only defendant of these six episodes that we get to hear from. Yeah. Which was a really interesting In the first person. That's true. Yeah. That's interesting. Because you know what? He doesn't give a fuck. Yes. He's probably trying to peddle his like consulting business in Houston or whatever, right? We're looking yeah. for clients. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, God. Like, who's hiring him? Like, seriously? <laughs> you know, the other sort of classic thing was, you know, these carpetbaggers coming down here and think they can talk to a jury of Alabamians. And so you get this like guy with his little act talking about his grandma and pancakes, you know, pancakes and <laughs> nobody likes the New England Patriots. And then the, yeah, exactly. And then at the end, he was talking about how emotional he was when when Scrooge won. And he said, tears were coming out and they weren't fake. And I'm like, well, yeah. There you go. Yeah. You know, you had you had a real emotion. That must have been weird. Congratulations. But the thing is, is that's, the, that's the most likable guy in the entire thing is that guy. You know, I mean, the other the other lawyer who literally wrapped himself in the flag and was trying to I, I don't even remember what he was trying to compare Scrooge's thing for like. Brown versus the Board of Education or some other like... The Dred Scott decision. Yeah, that was Yeah, it. I mean, it was just like, it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and uh, like, do you just do this at every single trial? Yes. Because this has nothing to do. Yes. And then it turns out he was a scammer. Yeah. So it's just, it was just like all these freaking scammers. And like the guy who's like the most like flamboyant about it is the only guy who didn't end up going to jail at any time. Yeah. So... You know, it was kind of fun, but it also kind of, it's just all so completely insincere. Yeah. It's insincere people preying on very sincere people and, and trying to convince them that they share their sincerity about things that are very important to these people. And in fact, it's just absolute and complete bullshit. And as soon as they can drop the act, they will. And the other lawyer, as soon as this was done, he moved to Miami and just like yeah. got out of Dodge. I was like, yeah. huh. Okay. Well, I want to skip episode five, the Big Dan's New Bed for Rape case for a second, and because I do think there's a very direct thread that we can tie between the Scrooge case and the Rod Blagojevich case, mm -hmm. because here you have yet another person who has been put in the spotlight for committing a crime in this case 
basically trying to sell uh, Barack Obama's Senate seat after he becomes governor of Illinois. And he, like Scrushy, leans in to the media in a whole different way. He becomes a contestant on The Celebrity Apprentice. He makes himself a guest on every talk show imaginable. He does the David Letterman's top 10 list. He's self-deprecating about his giant head of hair. Laura Bricker, what do you think of Rod Blojevich after watching this episode? You got to give it to him. He didn't give up without a fight. But boy, it was almost like, you know, when they actually came out, like diagnosed him with the uh, narcissistic personality disorder, you know, (laughs) surprise, (laughs) hmm, didn't see that one coming. But, you know, there was just so little, it felt like self-awareness of what he was actually charged with and the severity of what he had done and the wrongness of what he had done. As you're watching him just go from show to show to show, like this big lark and his his wife standing by him. And I think the only moment of actual sincerity you see out of him is when he, he talks about like his children and, you know, when he, you know, realizes like, oh, yeah, I'm actually going away. And, you know, we've we've dealt with this as like Kevin and I, when we were, you know, doing news reporting, you know, there's some people that you deal with that are just so good at spinning the media and so good at always being available for a comment and always being there when you need them to step in. And I felt like watching him, that was a quality he had. And, you know, it backfired on him. Ultimately, I mean, it didn't get him where he thought it was going to get him, but it was it was really interesting to watch. And the fact that everybody just like, I mean, I guess what what do you have to lose having him come on your show? You're like, hey, see what he says, you know, Kevin, a big part of this is just politics in Chicago and politics in Illinois. Yeah. Which are so corrupt. I cannot believe (laughs) I I just can't believe that it's accepted that your local politicians are going to go to jail. Yeah. And another governor going to jail. Yeah. That's amazing. It just it's not what happens where I live. You but know, you, you can ways, see why people get turned off to politics. But in some ways, you sort of understand. I mean, I'm not saying in any way excuses what he did, but he really is acting as if everyone else acts yeah. in in that political sphere. What, what yeah, there think? is a little bit about how come I'm not getting mine. Yeah, which is a sad statement about public service in that state. Yeah, that yeah, everybody should get it. And he's right. He had something that was in a black market sense. Very valuable. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I guess there are federal laws that he broke, but it's not, he didn't pocket a nickel from it, in part because they decided they had to move fast because it wasn't like he had to cash a check in order to get the uh, the benefit. He just says, Rebecca Lavoie, you're now the next U.S. senator. Yeah. It, it's too late then. That part of it, the more I thought about it, was really interesting. What do you think about his decision to do everything you can in the pretrial media push and what he and his family did after President Trump was elected to try to get yeah. out? Okay, so the pretrial stuff, I mean, we've, we've seen this in a couple other ones. The idea that his exposure is like, no, don't go out there and necessarily try to defend and say you're innocent. Show that you're a nice guy, that you're funny, you can be the butt of the joke. And that's a way of disarming him, right? That people see him not as a threat because he is the butt of the joke. But this idea, clemency by media, uh, that you can petition the chief executive for a pardon or clemency by flattering him on television is just so of this moment. Yeah. I just do not see this being something that you could do with future presidents that you can just play to their vanity and that, oh, sure, I'll just let you out of jail because of it. It was almost like future Rod Blagojevich went back in time and told past Rod Blagojevich, go on Celebrity Apprentice because you need to be friends with this guy. (laughs) Um, Well, I do do want to move on to, I think, uh, for me, one of the strongest episodes of the series, if not the strongest, was episode five, which was about the Big Dan's New Bedford rape case. Um, This case was in this series for several reasons. One is it later became a film, The Accused, starring Jodie Foster. Did you win an Oscar for that? She did win an Oscar for it, which they don't don't address the film in the series. But uh, just as an aside, it did remind me of this, uh, something we've talked about on the show before, where media made, the fictional media made after a case can influence your memory of the real case, such as with the Pam Smart case and Nicole Kidman film to die for, um, except that that film, you know, dramatized something that actually did happen. And one of the things that really, when you watch this, just seems so out of place in 2020, and you realize in the context of history it was not that long ago, was the public debate over whether or not this victim of a gang rape on a pool table in the back of a bar was asking for it. And you literally have man on the street interviews of people 
debating Kevin, like a reporter walking up to someone during a stand-up and saying, what do you think? And they're like, I think she asked for it. Literally using those words. And then there developed a public backlash. And uh, you saw this particular swing of the pendulum. Some people have asked, did she ask for it? What was she wearing? Why was she alone? Did she know anybody in the bar? Does that matter? Laura Bricker, what did you think when you saw those clips? Oh my God, I was, th- this This episode was so hard. That was absolutely maddening. This is 1983 when this happened. And and yeah, that's, that's a while ago, but it also was just absolutely horrifying to listen to kind of the public sentiment that existed at the time where something that was so clearly just an absolute, I mean, beyond horrible attack, beyond horrible, but to hear people justifying it because she asked for it. She maybe changed your mind. Maybe she'd been drinking this or that. Watching that, you're wondering, how is she, how is this actually going to play out when it gets to court? But then you're also listening on the other side to the uh, advocates from the crisis centers who are literally saying the same thing that we say today about victim blaming and this is going to deter other women from coming forward. And to see, you know, and realize that side of the coin when it comes to sexual assaults and rapes has also been going on for that same amount of time. And we're still saying the same thing because that still happens. Toby, one of the central debates in this episode, and it's one that I struggled with myself, a problem with this case was obviously that cameras were allowed in the courtroom and that her name, the victim's name and address were broadcast on television because the judge did not do a good job managing the idea that this would be a televised trial. Like There was an idea about transparency being good, which by the way, I think is right. Like I And he seemed to be thinking the right thing. If it were up to me, like all Just didn't court think cases, it all the way through. If it were up to me, like yeah. literally every criminal trial, every tr- court procedure would be accessible by audio or video. Like I do think there should be transparency. However, the idea that this was managed so poorly that the victim's name and address were broadcast on television, thereby allowing this already very incensed community, this marginalized community of Portuguese people who felt like they were on the outside and being victimized by this trial, gave them ammunition to then, you know, vilify this victim. Obviously very mishandled, but that is a difficult, like, needle to thread, right, Toby? Like the the transparency versus protections argument about, you know, televising trials or being able to record trials. Yeah, I, I don't know why a rape in particular would be where you would start knowing, you know, I mean, you've got you've got a living victim who's got a lot to lose in society by being named. So, yeah, I mean, trials should be as public as possible if you're just starting out uh, with this idea, I'm not sure why you would pick this particular case mm. if you're being responsible about it, which doesn't seem to be really what was at issue. And they talk about it in, in the episode, which is it was salacious listening. You know, it, it took the place of soap operas for people. Yeah, we saw that guy saying that he normally watches General Hospital, but now he's riveted to this trial instead. The trial became entertainment for a lot of people. And, and again, I, I, you know, it's a different time. And this was a new thing at the time. It's not like now where there's there's such a history of, of trials being televised and trials continue to be televised and all this stuff. In the early days of this... You know, I, I could see where, in addition to the salacious aspect of things, that there would be like sort of genuine interest in how justice is done. But again, it's like, why would you choose this particular trial? It Tell me, why would like, who choose this trial? Uh, the media, I guess. I mean, I, I I don't remember. Did they say? Well, who? it seemed to me like it was the one time that the judge said, yeah, come on in. I'm all for transparency. I realized that cameras in the courtroom had a true public benefit. So that was the choice I made. So I guess the the judge making this the trial where people can come and responding to the media's interest and in saying, yes, you can televise this, to me, in theory, is probably sounds good. But in practice, on this particular case, it's an incendiary case, even without the media watching the whole thing. Yeah. I think that we are missing a piece here that they did not address in the show, but I've been thinking about a lot, which is that in this period of time, rape was sort of at the center of a lot of prime time and mainstream entertainment. In 1978 on General Hospital, 
uh, Luke Spencer raped Laura. And then a couple years General later, Hospital. they got married on the show. There mm-hmm. was like this whole idea of like the rape was actually like part of his, you know, uncontrollable love for her. Then around the same time in the mid 80s, you have we were talking about this a couple days ago, a primetime film called Something About Amelia in which Ted Danson and Glenn Close are a married couple. And Ted Danson has been raping his 13 year old daughter for two years. And the ending of that movie is they all go to therapy and Amelia ends up forgiving her dad and they all kind of get back together. Happy ending. It was a very different time. And this is not an excuse but I do think that that plays into why the judge may have thought it was okay to put this on TV. Like, the conversation around it was just extremely fucking The awareness different. of it is different today than it was. Of then. course. That's clear. And we see that the advocates trying to get the word out. And the and the, the talk of, you know, people were saying, oh, but what if she wanted it? You know, how can you tell? And yeah, that is the way people talked and thought about it in that moment. And today we know better. And it's because it's because Do we all of, know better though. Well, we, we what don't happened know to poor Christine Blasey Ford when she was asked about her experience? Well, yeah, I mean, and yeah. it wasn't that long ago because I'm thinking, you know, I remember when I was in college, and I remember doing this a couple years in a row. They had this Take Back the Night march where yeah. we marched around campus all about sexual assault awareness, and it was it was like a different tone than what we have today and that wasn't that long I mean that was like 25 years ago but it was still you know I remember that so vividly and I feel like that's such a different time even than where we are now with regard to being a young woman on a college campus and and feeling like I mean that was the name of it take back the night you know yeah like trying to give people that rape was real catch and kill is you know Harvey Weinstein and Woody Allen and you know whoever else are are sending private detectives out to find you know information so they can slut shame these women who they sexually assaulted can we talk about the reaction of the Portuguese community in Fall River and and, uh, New Bedford because I I thought one of the things that you know made this a really great trial by media episode is you see the evolution of public opinion where it goes from a shock and embarrassment for the community and an awareness of the issue and then on talk radio backlash against the accused which became against the immigrant community and then backlash against the victim and then the outrage of the Portuguese community saying that they're being oppressed because these guys were found guilty at trial. And I thought that that was a really fascinating arc to watch. It was fascinating because... It was like, you know, and it is interesting. I saw and we're not going to take it anymore. And yeah. I'm like, what are you not going to take what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was as if they were hearkening back to a different time where they had been marginalized in a different way. And sort of, you know, it was it was sort of reminding me, Toby, it was sort of like the um, anti-Italian sentiment, like at the turn of the 20th century. Right. And like the beginning of the 20th century. And then like when I was a kid and, you know, you guys probably can't relate because you're not Italian. But I remember like. My grandma, like in the 70s and 80s, talking about like the discrimination against Italians. And I was like, yeah, I'm literally not experiencing that. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like a lot of my black classmates, like maybe, but not so much against the Italians. Um, It sort of reminded me of that. Toby, like there was that sort of weird like component to this where this community rallied and, and made themselves victims when, in fact, these men had committed this crime and like nobody really denied that the crime happened. It was just how it was characterized that was that was denied, right? Yeah. And, and you know, they, they do talk about and I, I don't know how public or pervasive this was, but the people talking about the community as a whole is it's not assimilating and not understanding American values and kind of making it seem as though brutal gang rape is just part of the Portuguese culture, that they're not leaving back in the old country. So in that case, I can understand the feeling of being persecuted, but I, you know, beyond that, I mean, it's you know, the whole the whole the whole situation is, is so tragic, and the fact that the victim died in a drunk driving accident so in Miami, at, sad, like yeah. age like twenty six or something, two years just, later, you know, yeah. it's just awful. Well, the way they led into that, I think one of the I can't remember who said. I mean, she was basically sentenced to a life in exile, and yeah. 
it was just like a tragedy the way that the whole thing played out. Now, Kevin, we do hear from the judge. You know, we do hear from people in this series mm-hmm. who like look back on it and sort of talk about their decisions and what went wrong. Do you like seeing that sort of modern day reflection sort of looking back at these things and, and like the perspective about oh, sure. why I did that and it went yeah. wrong because I made this mistake? Yeah, I mean, especially in that particular episode from that judge. Why did you let the cameras in? And the fact that he took responsibility for that particular mistake. I take him at his word that he thought this would be in the public's interest. And it was just great because too many times, and Laurel backed me up on this, you run into a judge who feels like if we let cameras in or we let this in, it's going to unduly influence what's happening. And there's no evidence of that. Mm. It's just the judge's gut. And that's not a legal argument. This case, he's like, you know, it's important. He, he recognized the public interest around it and that there is you know, lack of understanding of what the process is and that letting the cameras in would be good. He just didn't get to that next step. Okay, don't put the camera on the victim, but how do you handle the testimony? Right. So he's like, yeah, that's, you know, say, I think he acknowledged that. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out Trial by Media on Netflix? This is a six-part series, and I made the choice to have us uh, review only this this week because the six episodes are all so different from one another. I'm curious to know, panel, do you give this series a thumbs up or thumbs down review? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? I'm going thumbs up. I really liked this. Um, I liked the old footage they used from the time that, you know, different cases happened, uh, the people that they interviewed, and the cases were all really compelling in their own right. So each episode, you know, stood alone to me as I was watching them, and they all had something to offer. And I would like to say thank you to this series, because it brought my rage level back, which hasn't Mm. been up (laughs) to this level since the pandemic started and this is something worthy of raging against on many levels when you watch some of the things in these cases so i would say thumbs up what about you toby both thumbs up or thumbs down for trial by media on netflix yeah i'll give it a thumbs up i mean i think each episode was really good they kind of range from sort of solid b's to to a's i really enjoyed each one of them i think the best of them are very insightful uh, give you a lot to think about. What about you, Kevin Flynn? Thumbs up or thumbs down for Trial by Media on Netflix? I'm a thumbs up. Um, I think that these are six great cases. I think it's less about the influence of the media on the cases. At least it didn't seem like that was really what they were discussing. But they were they were discussing six very interesting trials. Uh, and the ways that the media did intersect with all that. I'm glad that the producers here didn't go with the um, it's all about ratings thing. I think that's a reductive argument. It's lazy. And that really isn't the case. I've, I've never had a reporter say, I'm going to do this story because I'm going to get great ratings. It just it doesn't it's not a one to one kind of thing. And it reminds me of like that Mad Men episode where Don Draper uh, admonishes Peggy for saying sex sells. He says, no, people say they don't understand what we do. It's like that. I hope they come back with a second season. I'm a thumbs up. I'm a thumbs up, too. I also hope they come up with a second season. What I loved about this series was that these are six cases that we have not seen over and over and over again. And as we have seen in many true crime products like There are different looks at different aspects of certain cases. These are all cases I was familiar with, thought I remembered, but didn't. And I think that was kind of the point. The intersection with the media was was handled very differently by all of the defendants and all the lawyers and all of the media markets in these stories. So we really got to see both the positives of media intersection, the negatives of media intersection, and how defendants and lawyers, you know, leaned on media or avoided media. I just think it was really interesting and really well put together. You know, one thing we didn't talk about at all was the just sort of the production style of this. It was just beautifully made. And I appreciate something that's beautifully made. So big thumbs up for me for trial by media. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime Crime of the week. week. Police in California say a man wearing only underwear and no shoes jumped into a tanker filled with red wine. Then while the rig was speeding down the highway, he started drinking straight from the tank. It happened last week in Modesto. Police say that Gabriel Moreno tricked the truck driver into pulling over, but he put it back in gear when Moreno spotted a man jumping on the tanker. While the truck was cruising down Highway 89, he crawled underneath the tank and unscrewed one of the valves. Officials say 1,000 gallons poured out on the highway, but not all of it went to waste. They say Moreno positioned himself, quote, 
like a snow angel and drank as much of the vino as he could muster. He was charged with felony vandalism. Postscript, upon his release the next day, Moreno was rearrested trying to steal a pickup truck near the jail. Panel, we're sure Mr. Moreno had his reasons. My question for you is, if you were his attorney, what would you tell the judge? Laura Bricker, what do you think? Well, I know the answer to this. So there's this defense called competing harms. And it's like, mm-hmm. if you are pre- your wife's in labor and you're speeding on the way to the hospital, that was justified. So yep. clearly, this guy needed to get somewhere in a hurry because one day he hops the wine bus and drinks all the wine. And the next day he steals a truck to get somewhere. So, I mean, he clearly needed to get that wine in before he got where he was going to. So I think was that's... Was he visiting his mother-in-law or something? Is that I don't know. Saying? I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where he was going. Toby Ball, if you were Mr. Moreno's attorney, what would you tell the judge? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what's wrong with the truth? Yeah, that's true. The guy saw his opportunity and he went for it. <laughs> and who wouldn't, right? Kevin Flynn, what about it, you? <laughs> if you're this guy's attorney... Praising him. <laughs> what would you tell the judge, Kevin. Uh, if the wine's Merlot, you must let him go. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> if the wine's Cabernet, going to watch him get away. <laughs> All right. We should probably end it on that note, but before we do- If it's Martini and Rossi, I don't have something. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? <laughs> we have a lizard of the week this week. Nice. Ooh. That's new. I know. So Tony Flanagan, one of our most active members Ooh. of the Brichter Scale Facebook group. I know. Hi, Tony. Hi, Tony. We hey, love Tony. She's always on there. Um, she has Lola, who I think has been one of our dogs of the week in the past. Now they have gotten a new crested gecko named Gidget. Nice. They got for their son, but is really bonded with her daughter. And she sits on my daughter's shoulder during online class or when she is doing her homework during the day. She walks around with her on her shoulders at times. And Lola was jealous and they were worried. But now there's, she gave me a nice video of Lola kind of wagging her tail and um, saying hello to the little lizard. Yeah, do not leave that dog and that lizard alone. That's all I'm going to say about that. (laughs) Laura Bricker, if people want to reach out to you on social media, perhaps Twitter, to pitch their dog or cat or lizard or llama to be cat of the week next week, how can they find you online? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and ask you very personal burning questions about the things they are learning listening to the Strange Arrivals podcast about UFOs and potential alien abductions. How can they find you on Twitter? At Toby Ball NH. Kevin Flynn, folks want to reach out to you and say, nice sweatpants. How can they find you on Twitter? <laughs> I'm at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoie. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you very strenuously to join our amazing community on social media on the official Crime Writers on Facebook discussion group or a regular old Facebook page. Support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media and you'll get the after show right now. Plus, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Our line editor is the very handsome and rakish Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven is brand new mama for a third time, Meredith Plunkett. Congratulations, Meredith and little Will. Welcome to the world. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement where we too operate a media empire to preemptively taint any future jury pool. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you Later. Later. All right. Are you guys ready to record a show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me just check. Let me just check my levels real quick. Doesn't it sound like he's in a, like a public toilet? Yeah. <laughs> is it better? Is well, it you, better sound, you sound really. Partners in crime media. media.